This is a crowd podcast. Amy Winehouse really was that much of a mess. Every bit as sloppy as we thought. Lived in squalor, surrounded by empty beer bottles, crisp packets and overflowing ashtrays. Blood up her arms, snotty nose. Mascara smeared across her cheeks. Even those bright red fingernails had dirt underneath. A few journalists mentioned the dirt under her fingernails. It was an easy metaphor, and it worked. They were saying to their readers, despite the fame, Amy's not fake. She's not pretending to be something she's not. She's totally real. When she says she's fucked up, she really is, believe her. She's not one of those plastic pop princesses. She's alive while digging her own grave. Amy was often described as a breath of fresh air, which is almost funny looking back because she often stank of booze and fags and sweat. But the point was, people wanted a stink. They were sick of polished female pop stars, sanitized, well-versed, at arm's length. They craved authenticity. Amy falling out of pubs. Pubs like they drank in. Amy swearing like a docker and singing about booze, weed and useless boyfriends. Just like one of their own Saturday night chats. Then one night, Amy went to sleep and never woke up. And you know the weird thing? When they heard the news, People claimed to be shocked. For years, Amy had been killing herself in broad daylight. A wreck traveling far too fast. Bald tires, faulty brakes, bits falling off, sparks flying, making a terrible racket. And now she'd hit a wall, people couldn't believe it. And to think, people claimed to love her realness. In some respects, there's not much to unravel when it comes to Amy's death. It's an age-old tale of a person unable to cope with the pressures of stardom, a troubled soul with too many dangerous vices, all the old cliches. But you have to ask, how was it allowed to happen? Why was something so precious not looked after better? Were we, as a society, maybe responsible too? Cheering her on when more of us should have tried to help. Amy only died in 2011, but what does her life and death tell us about how much the world has changed since then? Because one thing's for certain, there's been no one like Amy Winehouse since. Was she the last gasp of a less puritanical age? Less disapproving? More hedonistic, more fuck you, more tolerant of other people's mistakes? Maybe to a fault. 
There's nothing too messy about Amy's childhood, not at first glance. Born and raised in North London in a Jewish family, dad a cabbie, mom a pharmacist. Mitch and Janice split up when Amy is nine. Nothing unusual about that. There's music in the family. A couple of her uncles are jazz musicians. Her grandmother, Cynthia, a singer. Cynthia, Mitch's mum, dated the famous jazz musician, Ronnie Scott. Bit of a character as Cynthia, reads tarot cards, reckons she can tell people's future. Amy thinks the world of her. While other kids are listening to sugary pop, Amy is listening to all those old jazz singers. Sarah Vaughan, Dina Washington, Ella Fitzgerald, singing about the things that go wrong in life. While the Spice Girls are banging on about girl power, Amy is in her bedroom listening to Billie Holiday sing, My Man. Two or three girls has he that he likes as much as me, but I love him. When Amy's 10, she starts fiddling with her brother's guitar. She forms a rap duo with her best friend called Sweet and Sour. For a kid, she likes her music deep. The adult themes of jazz and sassy hip-hop artists, keeping it real. Like a lot of precocious kids, Amy goes to theatre school. In an essay explaining why she wants to attend, Amy writes, I want people to hear my voice and forget their troubles. Later in life, she says, my parents pretty much realise that I would do whatever I wanted. And that was it, really. Amy is obviously talented, just not big on doing things she doesn't want to do. What she wants to do is write songs and sing. After dropping out of school, she has a stint with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra and performs in London clubs. For a while, she's one of the worst kept secrets in the music industry. One club manager remembers Amy asking if she could sing a few numbers with the house band. He thought she was drunk, stoned or both. It didn't make sense, he says. Then I heard her voice and the band had to stop. What the band can hear is a tiny white girl who sounds like Dina Washington. A critic once described Washington as the ultimate realist, gritty, sometimes bitter and weary. Someone who's been around the block. Amy hasn't been around the block yet, but she's starting out on her trip. Amy is snapped up by Island Records, who are betting the public are desperate for a bit of old-school jazz diva, an antidote to all that sugar being pumped out by TV talent shows, something fresh, but not too wholesome. Amy moves out of her mum's house and in with her best mate in Camden, North London. She's only 18. Camden is home to a lot of young creatives, but it also has a rep for being a bit loose, raggedy, you might say. It's Amy's version of Harlem, brimming with music and fun and disrepute. In 2003, Amy's first album is released. It's called Frank, a comment on its attitude, 
as well as a nod to Sinatra. And it goes down a bomb. Amy's written every song but two and sung the bejesus out of them. Critics love her voice, the sleaziness as well as the soul, and the honesty and the seediness of her lyrics. One of the songs, Fuck Me Pumps, ends like this. Don't be mad because you're pushing 30 and your old tricks no longer work. You should have known from the jump that you always get dumped. So dust off your fuck me pumps. If the voice sounds like Sarah Vaughan, the words owe more to Missy Elliott. There's something in Frank for everyone, from the kids to the old folks. It sells in its hundreds of thousands, is nominated for awards and wins a few. Amy is just 21. This tiny Jewish girl from North London can only get better, right? Amy falls in love with 1960s R&B, particularly all those old girl bands like the Shirelles, the Shangri-Las and the Ronettes. Even starts looking like them with a sky-high beehive and that cartoonish Cleopatra eyeliner. But that's not all Amy falls in love with. She doesn't just want to look like her idols. She wants to live like them too. That includes the booze and the drugs and the doomed relationships. The inner demons, the tragedy, the kinds of things that Billie Holiday and Dina Washington had to deal with. After Dina's death, a friend said, she was a real modern woman, but she was driving ridiculously fast. And there was something in her inner life that troubled her. And when Billie died, the New York Times wrote, her death, like her life, was disorderly and pitiful. She was wasted physically to a small, grotesque caricature of herself. The worms of every kind of excess, drugs were only one, had eaten her. It's as if by listening to their music, Amy has somehow absorbed their personalities, the sad parts, as well as the good. The good parts are the music, on a break from her rogue boyfriend, Blake, Amy writes the album Back to Black. I wanted to die, said Amy. The songs really did write themselves. Released in 2006, it's an instant classic. Here's what The Guardian says. The songs are filled with broad talk, cussing, drink, drugs, and dicks. But that's only half of it. Back to Black is brutal, makes you wince. There's a lot of heartache and guilt delivered in that cracked, world-weary voice. Amy's not really into vocal gymnastics. All that octave jumping that other divas do, that's not honest, hides the truth. Back to Black is a mashup of 60s R&B, soul, jazz, and hip hop but poppy enough to sell by the skip load. It sells almost 2 million copies in the UK in 2007 and wins five Grammy Awards in the US. The single Rehab's a worldwide hit. That's pretty messed up when you think about what it's about. Her loved ones wanted her to get help and now she's telling them where to stick it. 
It's funny, but a bit sick. And people are dancing to it all over the world. The whole album is tragic. At times, it sounds like an old country record. Listen to the words of Some Unholy War. If my man was fighting some unholy war, I would be behind him, straight up shook up beside him, with strength he didn't know. Sounds like Tammy Winnett, not exactly a feminist anthem, more about standing by your man, whatever his shortcomings. And Amy's man has a lot of shortcomings. Blake Fielder Civil is just one of those blokes you get on the fringes of the music game. Looks and chats the part, a hipster, probably describes himself as a creative, but has no real talent for anything. Is heading nowhere in particular. What Blake does do well is drink and score drugs, which is right up Amy's street, all part of her destiny. Mark Ronson's the guy who co-produces Back to Black. This is how he sums Amy up. She's bringing a rebellious rock and roll spirit back to pop music. Everyone's trying so hard to project perfection. But Amy will say, yeah, I got drunk and fell down, so what? Listening now, maybe Ronson sounds irresponsible, almost childish. But back then, that's what people wanted, what they expected a proper rock star to be, when being messed up was still cool. When her grandmother Cynthia dies, that's when Amy really loses the plot. She goes from hottest thing in pop to bloody shame in a matter of months. The change is miraculous in a sad way, and people can't stop looking. This isn't your average rock star meltdown, getting drunk and swearing at photographers. This is properly disturbing. Amy's so thin, she barely feels her skinny jeans. It later comes out that she's been struggling with bulimia since she was a teenager. She's got scars and scabs and makeup where it shouldn't be. One night, photographers snap her wearing blood-soaked ballet pumps and bandages on her arms. She's got bruises on her neck. She airily admits that if Blake says something she doesn't like, she chins him. She punches a female fan in the face. When Blake tries to intervene, she knees him in the balls. The police arrest her after she headbutts some poor bloke who tries to hail her a cab. Amy tells a journalist, I'm a horrible, violent, abusive, emotional drunk. Amy's on the front of pages of the papers almost every week. Tabloid fodder they call her. When she appears on a TV music panel show, the host jokes, this isn't a pop quiz, this is an intervention. That's what's so strange in hindsight, that people think it's funny. In summer 2007, Amy ends up in hospital, suffering from exhaustion, in inverted commas. It's actually an overdose of heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, ketamine and booze. She says, I suppose if you have an addictive personality, you go from one poison to another. Blake gets the blame for introducing Amy to heroin and crack cocaine. 
If it hadn't been Blake, it probably would have been someone else. There's no doubt she's madly in love. Sometimes, her and Blake are like a couple of teenagers. They write each other little love notes. Amy gets his name tattooed above her heart, calls him baby. During their split, she say to him, I just want to look after you. It would be quite sweet if she was managing to look after herself. During one interview, she carves Blake's name into her stomach with a shard of glass. When Amy and Blake get hitched in Miami, it's just those two and a marriage clerk. They do it in the middle of an interview. They think they're a couple of outlaws, them against the world. Truth is, lots of people love Amy to bits and do everything they can to help her. This is what her older brother Alex says. If the person has no interest in getting better, there really isn't much you can do. Close friends and journalists who get to know her insist Amy's a peach. Smart, razor-sharp wit, hysterically funny, which makes the tragic wife stuff more difficult to take. She's generous too, gives money to charity, raises awareness of breast cancer and climate change. Then there are the random acts of kindness. One night, a cabbie tells her it's his daughter's birthday. When Amy gets back in the car after stopping for cigs, she hands the cabbie a birthday card. A journalist says Amy treats the paparazzi on her doorstep like pets, makes them tea, gives them biscuits, whacks them if they get too close. Although when she sends them on errands, fags, booze, crisps, she doesn't give them any money. That's her little victory because they're actually vultures. Amy's stint in rehab lasts five days. She doesn't stop using while she's in there. A UK tour is scrapped after one disastrous night in Birmingham. A reviewer writes, it was one of the saddest nights of my life. I saw a supremely talented artist, reduced to tears, stumbling around the stage and unforgivably swearing at the audience. By the end of 2007, Amy has gone full on punk. In January 2008, a newspaper publishes photos of Amy smoking crack. Then she's recorded singing a racist nursery rhyme. Imagine that in the age of social media. That might have been her, finished, cancelled. The fallout might have even persuaded her to sort her life out. Back then, it barely registered. Amy's mum writes her a public letter. It reads, I have known for a long time that my daughter has problems. We're watching her kill herself slowly. It's like watching a car crash, this person throwing her gifts away. When the United Nations accuses Amy of glamorizing drugs, it sounds like a sick joke. She was briefly a style icon around the time of Back to Black. The designer Karl Lagerfeld called Amy his muse, said she reminded him of Bridget Bardot, even had his catwalk models wear beehives. But everyone could see she was struggling. 
Her dad reveals that Amy's got early emphysema from too much crack and thousands of cigarettes. Amy says, do I like things that make me fuck up? Definitely. She's meant to sing the theme for the new James Bond film, but isn't up to it. She earns two million pounds for singing at a party for a Russian oligarch, but rumor has it, she turned up late, steaming drunk. In 2008, she performs on the pyramid stage at Glastonbury. She had the biggest crowd of the night. You don't even know how happy I am to be here tonight, she said. But before the end, she was taken away by security because she hit a fan. A few weeks later, Blake gets banged up for assault and attempted bribery. Now Amy says she's got nothing to live for. In early 2009, Amy's dad whisks her off to St. Lucia. It seems to do the trick. The papers publish pictures of Amy mucking about on the beach and riding horses. When Blake gets wind that Amy's carrying on with another man while he's dining on porridge, he files for divorce. Blake says something about setting her free. Amy says, I won't let him divorce me. He's the male version of me and we're perfect for each other. The divorce goes through in August. Amy's record label starts getting twitchy, keeps promising new material that never emerges. She looks healthier after St. Lucia, has kicked the hard drugs, but she's still bang on the booze. Vodka, Stella, anything. During one gig, she staggers off stage and pukes. At a film premiere, she forgets the words to Valerie, one of her biggest hits. She's in and out of rehab. Daddy doesn't think she's fine anymore. Amy had always wowed the greats. Back in 2007, she performed Love is a Losing Game with Prince. Jay-Z sampled Rehab, even invited Amy to move in with him. And in 2010, she records with Quincy Jones, who has worked with everyone from Sinatra to Michael Jackson. In early 2011, she records a duet with legendary crooner Tony Bennett. She listened to a lot of Tony when she was a kid. And Tony has spent a lot of time with talented, troubled women like Amy. Amy is terrified recording with Tony. Can barely look at him. Chews on her hair and the sleeve of her jumper. But when he sings, for you, for you dare only, a sweet smile appears on her face. Tony thinks she's a talent, but suspects she won't be around too long. Like Dina Washington, who he knew well. A tour is planned for summer 2011. Management say she's raring to go. This is good news, right? The tour lasts one gig in front of 20,000 fans in Belgrade. She stumbles onto the stage, takes off her shoes and falls over. She fumbles words, 
She stops singing completely and walks off stage while the band plays on. She thinks she's in Athens, then New York. When she tries to introduce her band, she forgets their names. People boo and throw paper cups. They've paid good money, so they have the right. They did the same to Judy Garland. She didn't last much longer. That sad night in Serbia is Amy's last show. On the 11th of July, 2011, Amy joins her goddaughter on stage at the Camden Roundhouse. People say she looks happy enough. She dances along to the Shirelles, Mama said, sings some of the words. I went walking the other day and everything was going fine. Met a little boy named Billy Joe and then I almost lost my mind. Ring any bells? On the 22nd of July, Amy has an appointment with her GP. She claims she hadn't drunk for 19 days before falling off the wagon a few days earlier. Asked if she plans to stop, Amy replies, I haven't achieved a lot of things I want to do. Back at her flat, she shows her bodyguard some clips on her laptop. Boy, can I sing, she says. But if I could, I'd give it back just to walk down the street with no hassle. That night, her bodyguard hears her watching TV and laughing in her bedroom. At 10, the following morning, he knocks and pokes his head around the door. Amy's lying on her bed. That's fine. She's not an early riser. Her bodyguard checks again at 3 in the afternoon. Amy hasn't moved. He quickly works out she's not breathing and calls an ambulance. But Amy's been dead for hours. Finally hit the wall. Amy once said she wanted to disappear at the height of her fame. Job done. Gone at 27. Like Jimi Hendrix, like Jim Morrison, like Janis Joplin, like Kurt Cobain. It has to be the worst club ever. Amy was five times over the drink drive limit and the official cause of death is misadventure. That's bleakly ironic. When Amy should have been out there conquering the world, she was drinking herself to death in her bedroom. They built a shrine in Camden with flowers, photos and paintings, empty bottles of wine, cans of lager and fag packets. The BBC interviews a couple of fans, asks if they're shocked. One replies, definitely, in a way. Music critics describe Amy's voice in the purplest of prose. Rolling Stone says it was like a broken heart, marinating in whiskey and cigarette smoke. But most agree her impact was as much about her attitude, says the LA Times, had she sung about her family trying to make her go to a barbecue instead of rehab, you wouldn't be reading this. Her story was her trouble. 
Amy paved the way for a wave of British female acts. If there was no Amy, there might be no Adele. Adele's pretty much said so. But that attitude has never been repeated. Lana Del Rey said of Amy, she was who she was. In that way, she got it right. Which begs the question, are any pop stars who they are anymore? Amy always was retro, even when she turned up in the early 2000s. More like old stars of jazz and country who died of drink, drugs, depression and man trouble. Now, that old school diva vibe is more out of fashion than ever. Tragedy isn't something to be celebrated or romanticized anymore. People tend to top more nowadays, even the kids, at the recklessness, the self-destruction, the danger, stuff they think is inappropriate. Modern pop stars are products, corporate projects, buffed up versions of their messier selves, if they are messy in the first place. Even modern day hip hop stars are businessmen, more worried about making money than keeping it real. And good luck to them. Amy has turned into a bit of a mystery, a cultural relic. But way back then, which is what it feels like, we related to the snotty nose, the smeared mascara, those bright red fingernails with dirt underneath. Even while Amy was digging her own grave, we knew it wasn't pretty, but neither is life, right? This episode was written by Ben Durs and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Charlie Frost. If you've been affected by any of the issues we spoke about in this podcast or are worried about someone you love, please go to crowdnetwork.co.uk forward slash helplines to find a list of people you can go to for help. For research... We read articles from The Times, The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Independent, The LA Times, Rolling Stone Magazine, Mancunian Matters, and All Music. We also looked back on tabloid newspapers to see how they treated Amy, and watched Asif Kapadia's brilliant documentary, Amy, which won an Oscar in 2016. The music we used is from BMG Production Music, but if you want to listen to some prime Amy, Go for Stronger Than Me for the early sound, Back to Black for the swagger, and Love is a Losing Game because it will break your heart again. If you like what we do, tell a friend, and if you use the Apple Podcast app, leave us a nice review. It would mean a lot to us. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist 
Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.